0: but for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Just a Bite series, posted March 16th, 2022, titled, If I Debated Kent Hovind, Best Evidence for Evolution.
1: Tonight, an Atheist Wednesday with Dr. Kent the Science Jet. That's a nice t-shirt. Oh, thanks. I got it at my church. Where I wear red, typically to, you know, just... It's Jesus shooting Charles Darwin. Well, you know, like the bull. Why would Jesus want to shoot Charles Darwin?
0: Because of his blasphemous theories.
1: Okay, speaking of bull, we're going to cover that tonight.
0: Kent Hovind was once a golden star of the Young Earth Creation movement, back in the era of VHS tapes. Your videos, he brought me in a big box. This was before DVDs even, so a big giant box of VHS tapes. But back from returning from his involuntary hiatus... Kent has not been able to recapture mainline church relevance in the second half of his career. Acceptance of biological evolution among mainline believers has increased, and the remaining holdout congregations are turning instead to better-funded, highly polished, more respectable organizations like Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research, or even Kent's son Eric for their conference speakers and Bible study curriculum. Hampered with travel restrictions, first of personal legal nature, and then of global health nature, Kent has pivoted to focus his efforts on his Dinosaur Adventureland property near Lenox, Alabama, and his near-daily YouTube videos. Given the number of people subscribed to Kent's two YouTube channels, the count of those actually watching is shockingly low and dwindling fast. If the comments are any indication... Those soldiering on with him fall into two camps, the fanatic faithful and the masochistic hate watchers, tuning in primarily for drama and a cheap laugh.
1: It's amazing. As soon as one of ours goes up, we get a bunch of dislikes and thumbs down. We got plenty of trolls on our channel.
0: Doesn't bother me. Undeterred, 69-year-old Hovind seems to have his eyes set on a legacy of quantity over quality. Even at his recent pace... The record for most wives is probably out of reach. But what about most debates?
1: I have now done 220 debates. I'm catching up. I'm going to try to... Gish is one of my heroes. He did 300 debates and lived to be 92. I decided I'm going to beat that or die trying.
0: Kent is not on a truth quest or even a conversion evangelical quest.
1: Several debates coming up, five this month altogether. I'll take on a
0: hundred more. Bring them on, guys. He's merely looking for notches on his debate belt.
2: And there's another notch on your belt.
0: A man who will do anything for one more victory notch on his belt, no matter what the cost, before he fades away. He's even so transparent as to use the debate number in his video descriptions and on-screen calendar. When I've been watching the old man with no standards hit on literally every person in the bar. She's the village bicycle. Everyone's had a ride. It's difficult to take a personalized debate challenge from Kent as much of a compliment. But several have been extended to me. And Paul, I'll debate you anytime live. Anytime.
1: How many times have you debated or talked about Pelogia? Uh, I've never really debated Pelogia. I've done a video on him. I'd Uh, be glad to. Anytime. Bring it
0: on. So why haven't I accepted these challenges? It's not because I'm scared.
1: You are a coward. C-O-W-A-R-D. Coward. A chicken. A lily-livered frog.
0: (laughs) I'm very much not afraid. Unfortunately, before we go on, I do need to make this disclaimer. While it has absolutely no bearing on the veracity of his science-related claims, and while I value free speech and the open market of ideas... Kent Hovind is currently convicted of some serious charges, with an appeal withstanding. Others may make other choices, but I would need that matter resolved before I personally would be willing to share a virtual or physical stage with him. But we're setting that aside for today's hypothetical question. What would it take for Polygia to debate a name-cleared Kent Hovind? Well, it recently dawned on me why Kent debates are so frustrating and pointless. Kent and his opponents are never actually debating the same topic. The most important thing one can do before a debate is to come to agreement with your opponent in advance on the definitions of the key words or phrases in the debate topics. If the interlocutors don't agree on definitions, what they're actually debating is the definition and not the merits of the proposition, and definition debates are generally a waste of everyone's time, to everyone but the most pedantic among us. For example, when I agreed to debate Sean McDowell on Apostle Martyrs on The Unbelievable Show, we first had a several email back-and-forth exchange agreeing to some definitions, like the word apostle, and laying out some basic stipulations, like the existence of historical Jesus and the approximate dating of the Gospels, to keep the conversation focused, on track, and hopefully useful to the audience. Now, imagine that Kent Hovind and I were debating the topic, Does Christianity Harm Society? And throughout the discussion, I defined Christianity as a cannibalism cult, and would not back down from this. Kent would naturally point out that he defines Christianity differently, but rather than yield to his common usage, I would instead obstinately point to some out-of-context verses and staunchly refuse to discuss anything but the cannibalism cult that I imagine Christianity to be. Would such a debate be useful to anyone? No. No, it would not. So why then would Anyone expect a useful debate with Kent Hovind on the topic of evolution when no one on the planet who advocates for biological evolution would agree with Kent's definition of evolution. The debate is rendered useless before it's begun, because at no point are the two opponents ever discussing the same thing in the same way. So Kent famously has specific demands for any debate.
1: Equal time. One topic at a time, and no interrupting. Equal time, one topic at a time. Equal time. And one topic at a time. One topic at a time, no cursing and swearing.
0: Obviously, I have no problem with those. Equal time, one topic at a time, and I generally don't curse. But Kent would also need to stipulate to my terms. First and foremost, and I am of the strong opinion that henceforth... No human should grant Kent a debate without demanding this, that prior to the debate, Kent provide, articulate, and unwaveringly agree to a definition of biological evolution that would generally be endorsed by biologists who affirm the theory. We know that Kent won't believe it, and that's just fine.
1: You can study all that stuff, and and when it comes time for the test, the teacher says, how old is the Earth? You can say... The textbook says 4.62937 billion years old. However, this is not correct. Mm -hmm. They know you did your homework, you studied it, you memorized it, you regurgitated it for the test, but you don't believe it.
0: Just like he advises school children, Kent just needs to demonstrate that he understands it and will be debating the actual theory. If Kent's case against evolution is so strong, then he should happily agree to challenge the most rigorous and most accurate version of evolution. If he won't agree to this, then he's admitting in advance that his arguments are against a straw man parody of his own making, and that he has no case against the actual theorem. Now, if Kent has been so brainwashed by his own decades of rhetoric that he can't come up with such a definition himself, I would happily allow him to consult college-level Biology textbooks actively in use today in mainstream secular universities and written in the last 20 years. Nothing from grade school, nothing from before the year 2002. The debate would open by Kent reading the pre agreed definition and affirming that he will not waver from this definition at any point in the conversation under penalty of forfeit. If our debating Kent on the merits of creationism, I would expect to be held to Kent's definition of creationism. Following the definitional lead of the affirmative side is the best path to actual productive comparison. To reiterate, stipulation 1 is agreeing in advance to definitions of the key terms, particularly the word evolution. I don't expect Kent to ever in 6,000 years agree to this. So the rest of this may be academic, but I'd personally add a few more for the sake of efficiency. Stipulation 2 would be a bit of a give on my part. For the sake of argument, the debate would assume that a personal deity was the creator of the first replicating molecules of life from non-life. I would agree for the sake of the debate to a designer. This would accomplish several things. It would appropriately keep abiogenesis and anything prior, out of the debate, since biological evolution does not speak to it, making it a red herring. It would also keep the focus on the actual evidence, how it was done, not who did it. It would also remove any motivation-assuming attacks, which are entirely non-helpful in a debate.
1: Why can't they say, this is designed? Because that means there's a designer. Very simple. They don't want there to be a designer because they don't want him telling them what to do.
0: And the final stipulation would be that I'm not here to debate or discuss what's published in textbooks or taught in classrooms.
1: AJ, have you spent three seconds trying to get this lie out of the textbook? Then help me get that out of the textbooks because it is in the textbooks.
0: First, I'm Canadian, so my influence on the American education system is negligible anyhow. But more importantly, I'm sure Kent would agree that what is or isn't taught has no bearing at all on what's true. That's it. Pretty easy, right? After Kent clears his name, we have three rules from him. Equal time, one topic at a time, no cursing, and three rules from me. Agree in advance on definitions to be used in the debate, including the definition of evolution. Both stipulate, for the sake of the debate, that life has a designer, and schools, taxes, and textbooks are irrelevant to the discussion. But here, in Kent's latest personalized challenge to me, he added some extra notes.
1: I'll debate Pelogia any day, won't
0: I? Pelogia? come on. And it's time to see the real you,
1: not the cartoon character with the muscles,
0: okay? If a debate between us were to ever happen, I'd definitely be on camera as I am for all my debates, live appearances, and call-in shows. So no worries there. I'm not sure why the cartoon bothers you so. I'd be perfectly willing to let you use the idealized Kent Hovind cartoon that you use in your presentation. Call
1: me, 855-BIG-DINO, PELOGIA. Open challenge. When you want to debate again.
0: Again? We've never debated a first time. With so many debates and whackings... It's no surprise that the details are a bit of a blur for Kent. No worries. But let's pay careful attention to the proposed debate format.
1: You start off, give the best evidence you know of for evolution. I'll counter that. Then you give best evidence number two. I'll counter that.
0: Okay. So I'm supposed to present something. Kent gets a turn to counter that. I get no time to counter the counter or ask follow-up questions or say anything really. I'm supposed to just move on to my next slide. That's not a debate. What you're describing is a lecture, but with built-in time for unmoderated heckling from the audience.
2: If you don't mind, I'll do the
1: jokes. We don't mind, but when are you going to do them? Fair enough. Come on. My channel, your channel, both channels. Neutral channel. Come on, Pelogia, you brave warrior.
0: I mean for the format Kent proposes, there's no reason I'd even need to be present. I could just pre-record a three-point lecture on video, and Kent can do with it as he will. And you know what? I think I'm willing to indulge Kent on that. Apologia's three best evidences for evolution, presented for Kent Hovind. Now, to the best of my understanding, most scientific descriptions of biological evolution center around change of allele frequencies in a population over time natural selection and common descent fortunately Kent Hovind already accepts the first two a change in allele frequencies in a population
1: microevolution
0: which means variations within the same kind
1: now that one we could agree with there that happens wild changes happen microevolution is variation within the same kind and that one has been observed
0: i mean he acknowledges the general concept we know he's heard me say the more technical version. If that's your definition of evolution, a change in allele frequencies in a population over time, those are all still ladybugs. Even if he doesn't seem to understand the phrase allele frequency.
2: Can you please explain what you understand by the term allele frequency? Uh,
1: no, I'd rather have you explain it and me, and me uh, see if that's what I understand. It's been too long oh. since I studied that phrase.
0: We'll take what we can get from Kent. And he does seem to understand and acknowledge the mechanism of natural selection.
1: Creationists have no argument with natural selection. We thought of it first. It's a conservative process that removes defective organisms and keeps the species strong. That's all it does. It's not a creative force. It's a selecting force. Natural selection can act only on biological properties that already exist.
0: It's not perfect, but for Kent, it's pretty close. More importantly, he acknowledges the mechanism. So that means that a debate with Kent Hovind about biological evolution is actually just a debate about common descent whether or not all life on Earth goes back to a common ancestor.
1: Birds, dogs, bananas, elephants, butterflies are all related to a common ancestor. Flies are related to whales and birds and bananas. Cats are related to pine trees. Chickens are related to bananas. Crocodiles are related to mosquitoes. Owls are related to fish. Chickens related to a T-Rex. Mosquitoes are related to whales. Mice are related to pine trees. Lizards are related to bananas. Dogs are related to tomatoes. The whale, the tomato, and the hamster are related to corn. A sparrow is related to a lily. Dogs are related to whales and bananas. Bear is related to the mosquito or the tomato. Flamingos are not related to whales or spiders. Cows are related to mosquitoes. Rabbits are related to, you know, pine trees. Watermelons are related to chickens. You are related to a tuna. We're related to tomatoes and bananas and whales. Humans are related to frogs. Did you know that? Do you believe fish and mosquitoes and dogs are related, Paul? Just answer yes or no. I'll answer for you. Yes, you do.
0: Unfortunately for fans of sophisticated discourse, Kent's typical response to the notion of common ancestry is incredulity and insults.
1: You really, really need to go look in the mirror and say, how did I get so stupid? What happened anyway? Where did I go wrong? Well, you let somebody teach you something dumb and you believed it because they impressed you. I guess. I don't
0: know. Of course, Kent's inability to understand or accept an idea says nothing about the truth of the idea that an idea may be counterintuitive or give one negative feelings has no impact on the truth of the idea. While I'm not a biologist and can't speak for what's best, I am qualified to speak for what convinced me. So here are the top three lines of evidence that convinced me that if there is a designer of life, that designer must have used the process of evolution from common descent as opposed to the fixed kind view that Kant advocates. 1. Endogenous retroviruses 2. The fusion of chromosome 2 and 3. The fulfilled predictions surrounding the discovery of TikTok. Each of these is worthy of a full standalone video, or even series of videos, but what follows will be the kind of brief limited overview possible in a debate scenario. And while we don't have Kent here to provide his rejoinders, if there's one thing that 270 Debates has taught us, it's that Kent doesn't use new answers. Just an old set of slides.
1: These are slides Hovind has used for years. (laughs) It's amazing the incredible amount of time you put into this
2: presentation and how incredibly it still is.
0: That is correct, because truth doesn't change. We know that Kent is a very busy guy and can't respond to everything. So to save him the effort... I can just insert Kent's best rebuttal for each, and we'll have pretty close to a debate. You're welcome, Kent. Endogenous retroviruses While the morphology of the fossil record leaves enough interpretive room for common descent deniers to raise doubt for some, the modern study of DNA not only affirms the phylogeny observations of the past is providing even more definitive, less ambiguous, less interpretive lines of evidence for common descent, including endogenous retroviruses, also known as ERVs. For this, I'm going to enlist the aid of my friend John Perry from Stated Clearly.
1: Just for you, Mr. Stated Clearly, we're gonna get the bigger hammer. (laughs) All right, okay, now pay attention. (laughs)
0: Who has an excellent video on this that everyone should watch? If that's okay with you, Kent.
1: I, Kent Hovind, will take on 10 of you at a time, with half my brain
3: tied behind my back, just to make it fair. Excellent. An endogenous retrovirus is a stretch of DNA found in your DNA that got there when one of your ancestors was infected by a retrovirus. A retrovirus is a special type of virus that reproduces by inserting its genes directly into a cell's DNA. The virus genes become a seamless, permanent part of the host cell's genome.
0: The most famous retrovirus is HIV, and the search for the cure for AIDS has led to detailed study and deep understanding of the specific retrovirus mechanics. Very briefly, a retrovirus approaches a T-helper cell and binds to its CD4 surface receptors. The virus pierces the cell and is drawn in until the two membranes fuse. The viral material, two RNA strands and helper enzymes, is injected into the cell. The viral envelope protein is abandoned, and the matrix and capsid proteins are digested. An enzyme called reverse transcriptase uses host nucleotides to convert the viral RNA into a single strand of DNA, and then again reverse transcribed into double-stranded DNA. Another enzyme integrates carries the DNA into the nucleus of the cell, makes a nick in the host DNA and allows the virus DNA to insert itself into the host chromosome. Approximately 8% of the human genome is made up of such insertions, readily identified by the characteristic presence of long terminal repeats followed by what are known as gag, group antigens, pol, reverse transcriptase and env, envelope protein genes.
3: The cell treats the virus DNA as if it were its own, it reads the virus genes, using them to make new viruses, and when the cell copies its own DNA before reproducing, it also copies the virus DNA and passes it on as well. On rare occasions, virus genes find their way into sperm and egg cells. If that sperm or egg cell ends up participating in fertilization, the resulting child will have a copy of virus DNA in every single one of her cells. She'll even pass it on to her kids if she has children. They can go on to become a permanent part of a species genome. Your endogenous retroviruses act as historical records of past infections suffered by your ancestors. As is the case with all mutations, a retrovirus insertion might have a negative effect on the individual that contains it. It might be neutral or with a bit of luck, it could end up being beneficial. So... How does this all act as evidence that humans, chimps, and other primates really evolved from a common ancestor? Remember, your endogenous retroviruses show you the unique history of specific virus infections suffered by your ancestors. They're like scars in our DNA that an individual acquires during its lifetime and can pass on to his or her descendants, but only his or her descendants. If humans and chimps share a common ancestor and If at least some of the infections we find in our genome occurred before the chimp-human split, we should find the same virus genes in the exact same locations in both human and chimp genomes. In contrast, if humans and chimps are not related, they should not share the same history of virus infections. Now, of course, it is possible that throughout history, both species, humans and chimps, were infected by some of the same viruses. Humans and chimps sometimes get each other sick today. But if chimps and humans are not related, those virus genes will not be found in identical locations of both chimp and human DNA. This is because when a retrovirus infects a host, there are many different spots in the host genome where it might end up inserting itself.
0: Lab experiments have indicated more than 10 million possible insertion spots.
3: To get a rough idea of how many insertions are shared between humans and chimps, researchers scanned both of our genomes looking for a type of retrovirus they knew was common in humans. They found 211 insertions in the human genome and 208 in chimpanzees. They found that we share not just one, not just 12, but 205 insertions. 205 out of 214 for this particular virus group. This makes perfect sense if we consider the evolutionary view of life. The 205 shared viruses were inserted sometime before the chimp-human split. The six insertions unique to humans and the three unique to chimps either represent insertions that happened after the split or they represent deletion mutations that removed a few viruses in just one lineage after the chimp-human split. In contrast, if we want to believe the fixed species view, we're forced to conclude that these viruses are simply shared by coincidence. When we do the math, even, Making sure to account for the nine viruses not shared by the two species, the chance of this happening by coincidence is less than one in this crazy number right here. This evidence should be enough for even the most reluctant yet rational person to carefully set aside the fixed species view.
0: As the DNA of more and more species are being studied, the more of these common ancestry ERV trails present themselves. So, What is Kent Hovind's response to this? He said endogenous retroviruses are evidence for evolution. Well, somehow, the self-proclaimed science enthusiast remained blissfully unaware of modern genetic research until his 2020 debate with conspiracy cats, who famously took the creationist by surprise. Yeah,
1: I think, let's do ERV in a separate debate. I'm not prepared for that.
0: But the wounded warrior vowed to come back better, stronger, and more educated.
1: I'm gathering all kinds of cool stuff on ERVs. They are absolutely no evidence for evolution at all. We'll get, I'm gonna put it together really well. I'd never heard anybody use that as evidence for evolution. So when he asked me that, I said, I'm not prepared for that. I've never heard of that before, used for evidence for evolution. He said, I was not prepared to answer his assertion that ERVs, are evidence for his religion of evolution. I'd never heard that one used before. I said, I'm not prepared for that. I've never heard anybody use that as evidence for evolution. So uh, that it doesn't mean it can't be prepared for. I said, I've never prepared anything for that as far as slides. I'm working on it. Believe me, uh, I've, I've read quite a bit on this trip. I, I looked up quite a few things. It's very easy to debunk. See, those things are unbelievably complex. They're not evidence for evolution at all. Probably in the, in the next couple of days, believe me, we're gonna ha- we're gonna we're gonna hammer that one down.
0: No problem. It's been a lot more than a few days. It's over two years now.
1: Er, we're we'll, we'll going to ERV's another night. That's not on this topic tonight. And I've got a hot date with my wife here. I got to go to soon.
0: Ah, uh, yes, priorities. I wonder which wife that was. With his love life keeping him hopping, not even the entire COVID era gave Kent the time to come up with a singular answer to the common descent map, clearly spelled out by ERVs. But, as a promising starting point, Kent isn't denying the science involved. ERV insertions exist, and can be identified, and even gives glimpses that perhaps he understands the significance.
1: So the fact that different species have endogenous retroviruses is indication they have a it's common answer. that, that they have them. For those who don't know, endogenous retroviruses are viral elements in the genome that closely resemble and can be derived from retroviruses. They are abundant in the genomes of jawed vertebrates. They comprise 5 to 8% of the human genome. They'll say humans and gorillas and gibbons, for instance, have certain ERVs. Uh, space place someplace in their genome, <clears throat> and that proves that we are related x number of million years ago.
0: When pinned down in a debate, Kent acknowledges how to identify ERV insertions with a sheepish "sure."
1: Those specific sequences of endogenous retroviruses, being the Gag,
2: Pol, and Env genes, um, are recognized specifically for coming for a, for, from a, diff- a specific source, which are, endo- which are retroviruses. Um, sure. and, the re-
0: and their endogenous nature with an affirming nod.
2: viruses
1: insert their uh, genes into our genes, and when they get into the gametes, uh, the sex cells, uh, we can reproduce, and, e- and every cell in the uh, offspring will have those genes.
0: This is some important common ground to start, but it makes Kent's first counter all the more frustrating. His characterization and dismissal of ERV insertions as mere genetic mistakes.
1: Endogenous retroviruses, because there are similar mistakes in the same location, that proves we're related. Brilliant. The best example is like a misspelled word in a book. They got the letters transposed. That's not evidence that nobody wrote the book. That's what the, And you cannot tell when this was inserted in the gene code. Come on. You don't know when that person misspelled that word. This is a change in the code. This is like finding a typographical error in a book that is then repeated for every generation after that.
0: It's possible that I helped contribute to this misunderstanding. As in my video on endogenous retrovirus insertions with conspiracy cats, for illustrative purpose, I made an analogy of book pages with identically spilled spaghetti sauce, pen scribbles, and ink smudge with an eye to demonstrating that these were artifacts they were clearly inflicted by forces other than the original author. If I were to do it over again, a better analogy would be to speak of a series of recipe books. And in each recipe book, we find scattered individual sentences from vehicle maintenance manuals. And analogously to the gag, pollen, and end genetic markers, these car instruction sentences are in a different font on the page from the cooking instructions would we suspect that the author of the recipe books, and not just any author, but an omniscient perfect infallible author who wants only perfect dishes, deliberately included each of these vehicle maintenance quotes in each book from scratch? Or would we suspect that after the author wrote the book, text became inserted, and that text got copied?
1: Do you believe that the evidence of a mistake in the genetic code, which is way more complicated than Microsoft PowerPoint code, is evidence that nobody wrote that code.
0: That's your mistake, Kent. The ERV trail doesn't say that no one wrote the code, by your imperfect analogy. It says that some code was written. Someone else later inserted some instructions, and newer programs also have the rogue instruction, meaning that the newer programs could not have been created from scratch.
1: Retrovirus, uh, changing, moving around, is just like a misspelled word. This is not evidence that nobody wrote the book.
0: This is really dumb. No, Kent. Retroviruses don't move anything around. They just insert. You don't understand. Or you deliberately misrepresent.
1: Millions of lines of code to make PowerPoint. Are there any mistakes in Microsoft PowerPoint code, do you think? did you think over yes. the years they've... The, the, the programmer might have made a mistake yes they still find mistakes okay does yes. that therefore prove that nobody wrote the code so the whole idea that ervs and we'll cover that in a whole separate video here soon uh, That whole idea that that is evidence for evolution is absolutely stupid beyond level beyond comprehension uh it's like saying oh wow look we got a misspelled word this letter's in the wrong place ah that's proof nobody wrote the book
0: again what makes ervs so compelling is that they can't be explained away as simple mutations or mistakes. They are later foreign instructions that make no sense to say they were in the original. For this debate, we're going to be agreeing to an original designer of life. ERVs tell us that the design for the various kinds happened over time, not all at once, and definitely reusing corrupted components instead of perfect blueprints. ERVs tell us that the designer created the first life and then let it diversify, at least somewhat unguided. To me, that's far more awe-inspiring than the idea that the designer took a day to prepopulate a bunch of variations of the same basic thing.
1: And your evidence for that is because we have inserted DNA code from an ERV, and you're basing this on the geologic column again, that this somehow means something.
0: No, Kent. One great aspect to all the DNA based lines of evidence for common descent is that it requires no fossils, no geologic column in sight. ERV comparisons can be done entirely with the DNA of living organisms. Just as DNA can tell us that two people are siblings, even if the parents are no longer alive, so too ERVs identify common ancestry, even if that ancestor is long gone. Kent accepts this for paternity cases, so we should accept it here. Perhaps Kent's strangest objection is that the ERV evaluation is too new somehow?
1: But see, the ERVs weren't even discovered until 1960s. And so they were teaching evolution for 100 years before that. So now they're saying this is the best evidence for evolution. I say, guys, hold it. Think about that for a minute. You were teaching this for 100 years before you had any evidence? Over the last century and a half, they, they, they keep switching
0: what their best evidence for evolution is. The first murderer to be convicted on the basis of DNA evidence was in 1986. Over 30 years later, and DNA is now generally considered to be one of the strongest kinds of evidence that can be presented in a criminal trial. Do we suggest that the courts are doing something wrong by adopting new methods? Do we suggest that before 1986 there was no way to know who committed crimes? That's just silly, Kent perhaps even worse than his argument from the metric system.
1: How could you possibly use that as evidence for evolution? That's like saying the Toyotas and uh, uh, Mitsubishis both use metric nuts and bolts. Ah, that's proof they're related and they evolve from a skateboard. That's like saying Toyotas and Hondas both have metric bolts. That's proof. Yeah. They're both made in Japan, where they use the metric system.
0: Duh, okay. There's no great analogy from cars to living organisms, since vehicles don't reproduce. But if one had to force a comparison here, it'd be more accurate to say that if modern Toyota and Honda engines both included the same part from a dollhouse, we would safely assume that the blueprints for both could be traced back to the same past nonsensical blueprint insertion simply being blindly copied and not because of some strange coincidence stemming from two separate from-scratch designs.
1: The the fact that there are similarities in DNA, and even maybe retroviruses, uh, some kind of weakness in the system that allows this to happen, uh, could be,
0: again, from the same designer. Only if that designer is copying and pasting from corrupted copies rather than a pristine original. Then there's Kant's unrelated appeal to complexity.
1: Now, did you get into uh, at all in your study how tiny how incredibly tiny these iris vase are, using Igpe Atenle here, uh, mind-boggling that they can be so incredibly complex and yet so incredibly tiny. And yet somehow in, in Conspiracy Cat's mind, that was enough to prove
0: evolution. The breadcrumb trail left by ERVs is neither proven nor disproven by how simple or complex other systems are. And we come finally to Kent's most recent excuse for ERVs, Something he came up with for his Mark Drysdale debate rematch. The notion that ERVs can serve a beneficial function in our DNA.
1: Endogenous in bat- retroviruses, let me just show you that there is a very clear answer. Retroviral pr- promoters in the human genome. Our analysis revealed that retrovi- retroviral sequence in the human genome encode tens of thousands of active promoters, transcribe ERV sequences. Correspond to 1.16% of the human genome sequence. Let's see.
3: It, you can read all the article for yourself. Or we can throw it back to stated clearly. In these cases, a retrovirus insertion can be thought of as a single, giant mutation for the host. As is the case with all mutations, a retrovirus insertion might have a negative effect on the individual that contains it. It might be neutral. Or, with a bit of luck, it could end up being beneficial. Virus genes also act as extra genetic material that evolution can, quote, play with as generations pass on. Future mutations can give virus genes new functions, some of which might happen to be useful. Recent studies have found that, in at least one case, it seems that an ancient mammal was infected with a virus that ended up aiding the animal in reproduction. Many of that early mammal's descendants, humans included, eventually became fully dependent on the virus gene. We can no longer reproduce without it. We are part virus. Scientists
1: identify new beneficial function of endogenous retroviruses in the immune response system. This has been known for a long time, Mark. Long regarded as junk DNA or genomic dark matter, endogenous retroviruses have turned out to represent important components of the antiviral immune response. They not only regulate cellular immune activation, but may even directly target invading viral pathogens. In this gem, we summarize mechanisms by which retroviral fossils protect us from viral infections.
0: That the effect of an ERV insertion be positive, neutral, negative, or perhaps even scary.
3: Now, at this point, you might be asking, how do we know for sure that genes with similar sequences to virus genes actually came from viruses? Has this been experimentally demonstrated? In several different cases, yes. Scientists recently took human cells incubated in Petri dishes and slightly mutated the DNA of one of our endogenous retroviruses to see if it would start producing viruses again. Sure enough, it worked. An extinct virus was revived from a DNA sequence found in our very own human genome. Endogenous retroviruses really are the remaining scars of ancient virus infections.
0: If Kent is acknowledging, as he did earlier that ERV insertions are the result of viral infections. Then he is also acknowledging that ERV insertions were not part of the DNA originally supplied by the designer he proposes. So
1: don't tell, quit, stop telling people they're evidence for evolution. They're evidence of an amazing designer who created everything
0: in six days. If we follow along with this logic, we could allow that the life designer excluded some planned functions from the original DNA he supplied, but instead chose to have those supplied at a later time by viral infection. That's fine, but irrelevant to the question of common descent. Does it make more sense that the designer coordinated the viruses to infect specifically the sperm or egg cells of hundreds or thousands of different kinds of creatures and infect in exactly the same location for each one? Or does the evidence point to the designer coordinating a single viral infection to lend some helpful genes to an early form of a creature, and therefore having all the descendants share the insertion at exactly the same place? You see, it doesn't matter if Kent could show that every single one of the thousands of ERV insertions was specifically beneficial, because the unique breadcrumb trail that they provide toward common ancestry doesn't care one way or the other. For beneficial function to become a factor, Kent would have to argue that the designer wrote what looks like thousands of viral insertions into the DNA without them actually being viral insertions when he could just as easily have made them regular DNA. This would be an entirely post-hoc rationalization beyond what most credulity could bear. Of course, such an argument is purely hypothetical. While a few examples of beneficial ERVs have been discovered, it's not all. For example, multiple sclerosis seems to be tied to the presence of one or more ERV. Fusion of Human Chromosome 2 Kent insists that science is limited to that which is observable, testable, repeatable science. And to some extent, he is correct. But science routinely deals with things that were not observed and events that cannot repeat. What needs to be observed is the data. Not the event, what needs to be repeated is the data. For example, we don't deny the measurements taken from a footprint just because we didn't watch it being made or can't make another one just like it. No. What science cares about most is predicting future data. The better a model makes predictions of findings, the better it is. Be it the timing of the next eclipse, the existence of the Higgs boson particle, or genetic markers that make sense only if all life emerged from common ancestry. One such prediction is the fusion of human chromosome 2. This one was so definitive for me that I named my pre-pologia blog, Chromosome 2. In a live debate, I'd obviously go over this myself, but since this is a video, let me throw to the NOVA documentary on the Kitzmiller vs. Dover trial the legal case where intelligent design was ruled to not be science. The cells
2: of all great apes, like chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans, contain 24 pairs of chromosomes. If humans share a common ancestor with apes, you'd expect us to have the same number. But surprisingly, human cells contain only 23 pairs. Evolution makes a testable prediction. And that is that somewhere in the human genome, we ought to be able to find a piece of scotch tape holding two chromosomes together, so that our 24 pairs, two of them were pasted together to form just 23. And if we can't find that, then a hypothesis of common ancestry is wrong and evolution is mistaken. Typically, on the ends of every chromosome, you should find special genetic markers, or sequences of DNA, called telomeres. And in their middles, you should find different genetic markers called centromeres. But if a mutation occurred in the past, causing two pairs of chromosomes to fuse, we should find evidence in those genetic markers, telomeres not only at the ends of the new chromosome, but also at their middles, and not one, but two centromeres. Lo and behold, the answer is in chromosome number two. All of the marks of the fusion of those chromosomes predicted by common descent and evolution, all those marks are present on human chromosome number two. So the case is closed in a most beautiful way. Evolution has made a testable prediction, and it has passed. Once
0: again, on the few occasions where Kent has even attempted to address human chromosome 2, he has missed the point entirely.
1: Help me whack an atheist. Chromosome 2 is really just a fusion of two great ape chromosomes. Why would you think that? Uh, It may be similar to the great ape chromosomes because the same designer wrote that code. Microsoft Word and Microsoft PowerPoint share the same spellcheck dictionary. That was probably million lines of code identical. Does not prove it evolved from explosion in a print shop. And still, it was designed. So similarity in our code or the ape's code is because same guy, same guy wrote the code.
0: This line of evidence isn't saying that humans and chimps are related because their DNA is similar. It's saying that we're related because where we are similar, there is a copying and pasting artifact. Again, for the sake of this debate, we aren't trying to determine if there is a designer, but whether the designer created each kind from scratch, or if the designer built different organisms from common ancestors. If the designer designed humans from scratch, why would the designer add in extra centromeres and telomeres into the chromosome 2 to make it look like gene fusion, when we would expect that perfect designer to instead implement a clean from scratch copy of his design.
4: How do you reconcile the chromosome 2 fusion in humans?
1: He's saying there are similarities, again, we're off on a different topic, but there are similarities in the chromosomes of humans and chimps, he thinks. Actually, people don't, you better really study that. Okay, I could, I could put documents and say, look at the similar documents. These, these, these two documents both use the same 26 letters of the English alphabet.
0: Aha, uh-huh. that proves they're related. Again, Kent misses the whole point. For the sake of this debate, I'm agreeing that there's a common designer. We're not examining the similarities or differences of chimps here. We're asking why the designer would use a clean copy of the code for chimps and an obviously mangled copy of the code for humans. It's the centromeres and telomeres that need to be explained in Kant's fixed kinds view. He took one last crack at this because Kent loves to default to complexity.
1: God made human chromosome number two to let us know evolution did happen if you have to think of it in those terms. I don't have to think of it in those terms. And I don't intend to think of it in those terms. That is why you fail. Human chromosome number two is incredibly complex. Any one chromosome in any cell is more complex than the space shuttle, the most complex machine built by man, as far as I'm aware, okay? One chromosome is more complicated than the space shuttle. And if you think that is proof that God made it happen by chance, you need serious
0: help. Again, Kent. No one discussing human chromosome 2 is denying that it is complex. Just the opposite. We’re saying that it seems to be needlessly complex. The designer mashed two existing chromosomes together, rather than designing a single chromosome. The best answer for this is that the designer utilized common descent. Finding Tiktolik. As you'll recall, what science values most is unique predictions about future data. And in that light, One has to be impressed with the discovery of Tiktaalik, what common descent affirmers would refer to as a transitional species in the classic sense. But let me be clear. One does not need to be impressed with the specimen itself or what it might mean. I know Kent is not. No fossils
1: can count as evidence for change of anything. No fossils would count. In In an honest court of law, you couldn't prove those fossils had any children. And you certainly couldn't prove they had children that were different than themselves.
0: No. What one has to be impressed with is that scientists were able to use a model of common descent to calculate and predict in advance exactly where geographically and where in the strata that a creature like Tiktaalik would be found.
4: What evolution enables us to do is to make specific predictions about what we should find in the fossil record. The prediction in this case is clear-cut. That is, if we go to rocks of the right age and the rocks of the right type, we should find transitions between two great forms of life, between fish and amphibian.
2: Armed with this prediction, Shubin and his colleagues organized an expedition to one of the most desolate places on Earth, the Canadian Arctic, about 500 miles from the North Pole, where rocks of just the right age are exposed. Here, they hope to fill a gap in the branch of the evolutionary tree that leads from primitive fish to animals with four limbs, or tetrapods, by finding a fossil of an animal that shared characteristics of both.
4: And then in 2004, in the third day of the season, a colleague of mine was removing rock and discovered a little snout sticking out the side of the cliff, just like, exactly like this. And he removed more rock, and more rock, and more rock, and it became clear this was a snout of a flat-headed animal. And that's when we knew, flat-headed animal at 375 million years old, this is gonna be something interesting. Over here you have a a fish of about 380 million years old. And what you see, just like any good fish, it has uh, scales on its back and fins. You compare that to an amphibian, you find a creature uh, that doesn't have scales, and it's modified the fins to become limbs, uh, arms and legs. And the head's very different. It has a flat head with uh, eyes on top and a neck. What we see when we look at the fossil record, at rocks of just the right age, is a creature like Tiktaalik. Just like a fish, it has scales on its back and fins. You can see the fin webbing here. Yeah, when you look at the head, you see something very different. You see a very amphibian-like thing with a flat head, with eyes on top. It gets even better when we take the fin apart. When we look inside the fin, as in this cast here, what well, you'll see it is bones that compare to our shoulder, elbow, even parts of wrist. Bone for bone. So you have a fish at just the right time in the history of life that has characteristics of amphibians and primitive fish. It's a mix.
0: If you accept that the designer of life utilized common descent then it makes perfect sense that scientists could use common descent modeling to predict where to find Tiktaalik. But if you insist that the designer made fixed kinds all at once, you posit that God created the Tiktaalik kind, which may or may not have been on the ark, depending on whether it qualified as a breather, only for it to go extinct, and the only three specimens ever to be found happened to be exactly where common descent predicted, and nowhere else on earth. Kent would possibly say this is a coincidence if he understood the argument which he does not. Instead of addressing these circumstances of its finding, Kent treats Tiktaalik like just another fossil.
1: Artist Conception shows
0: what this ancient
1: croco fish creature known as Tiktaalik, the one you just mentioned, first of all, why would any animal that's in the water doing fine come up on land? And who would it marry? And what did it eat? Did it learn to breathe first or
0: walk first? Sorry, but no. Try again.
1: Tiktaalik is a fish with limbs, Frank says. The theory of evolution predicted such an animal would exist in that particular layer of rock. If evolution is true. Okay, uh, Frank. Here is Tiktaalik. 375 million year old fossil fish discovered in the Canadian Arctic in 2004. It sheds light on a vital, pivotal point in the history of life on Earth. The very first fish ventured out onto land. In the Canadian Arctic, I bet it froze when it got out there. Of course,
0: that spot of land was elsewhere at the time under a very different climate. But Kent doesn't buy paleogeography either. And that's way outside the scope of today's discussion.
1: They've now found fish... In layers older than that, Frank, the lobe-finned fish have bones similar to other vertebrates. Yeah.
0: Rather than address the predicted find, Kent misdirects with a misunderstanding of the claim. No one arguing for common descent says that Tiktaalik was the first creature with lobe fins. In fact, common descent would expect and predict populations of lobe fins before Tiktaalik. But that's all distraction from addressing the prediction itself.
1: Shiktelik mentioned Minton said, is not unique in having these bones because other lobe fin, such as the coelacanth fish, also have them. Evolutionists say the lobe fin fish came became extinct millions of years ago. Coelacanth in particular supposedly vanished.
0: This is a good example of why I'd need Kent to agree in advance to a definition and understanding of biological evolution before there would be any point in debating him. Evolution doesn't require extinction. And Kent is entirely off track now from tectolic.
1: Lobe finned fish are still swimming around. They're not a transitional fossil of anything.
0: This is Kent's rewording of the if we evolve from monkeys, why are there still monkeys argument that even answers in Genesis begs creationists not to use. So let me point out the obvious about tectolic,
1: okay? It's dead. You can't prove it had any offspring. You sure can't prove it had different offspring. No animal today can produce anything other than its kind. It said it had many, having many features akin to those of tetrapods. That doesn't prove anything. Don't the Hondas have many features akin to the Toyotas and the Chevys and the, uh, does that prove they're related? No, it's a good design. It works. Okay. No animals today can produce anything other than their kind and arranging fossils in some sort of order that you imagine is not proof of anything.
0: We won't go into today why these are poor arguments. We're just waiting to see if Kent ever addresses the common descent predictions.
1: Sorry, Tiktaalik is not a missing link, Frank. You are wrong. Tiktaalik is a fossil of a dead fish.
0: Okay, that's long enough. Any more from here or from here? Finally, we agree, Kent. That's long enough. To recap, if Kent wants to deny that the designer of life used common descent, he needs to defend that, one... The designer of life either created organisms imperfectly at first in order to allow thousands of simultaneous, identical retrovirus attacks across all the kinds at once, or he created DNA to look like viral insertions when they are not. Two, the designer of life stuck some extra centromeres and telomeres into the Human Chromosome 2 design, where he gave a pure copy of the design to chimps. And three, the designer of life specifically created the Tiktaalic kind to have them exist only for a short period of time, coincidentally in the tiny geographical region where common ancestor advocates would predict it existed. Any of those would make the designer of life a deceiver. Perhaps the god of Jeremiah 27 and 2 Thessalonians 2.11 is that designer after all. And if I were ever to grant Kent a debate and become another belt notch on his way to 300, he would need to do and grant a few things. And frankly, I don't think anyone else should debate him either, without similar concessions. Before anything, he would need to clear his name. I know he's trying. Until then, I have to assume the court ruling is correct. But if that happened, then, number one, Kent and I would need to agree on a definition and debate usage of the concept of evolution in line with its usage among biology scholars. Two, we stipulate that there is a designer of life. And three, no discussion of taxes, schools, textbooks, or other government policies. Since I find it unlikely that any of that will ever happen, if you're looking for more of me taking on the Young Earth creation fallacies of the Hoven family, tap on the playlist on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.